1: Welcome to So
2: Very Wrong About Games, our 300th episode
1: episode, episode. <laughs> ah.
2: You might have thought it was a bad idea after one, but we kept going we, for another 299. It's true, we don't usually keep track of, of episode numbers, but
1: what? Like, we don't announce the the, the, yes. the number or anything like that. It's hard not
2: to keep track of it, it's in the title of the file name. It so. is, but I mean like
1: <laughs> during during the episodes we never of really course, refer to it. That is but true. But 300 is a big number and... Uh, And there it is. We are a board gaming podcast. I'm here with my good friend, Mark. And today we are going to talk about board games. We're going to talk about the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. We're going to talk about the games we played this week. We're going to talk about some news and then our topic of the week, which is going to be our listeners top 20 games.
2: So to explain the context, there is a Patreon-exclusive Discord where users have been submitting their BoardGameGeek user IDs with all the ratings and concomitant comments therein, and it has been crunched, and we've tabulated it, and we've come up with a slate of an abstracted representation of the top 20 board games of that community, and we're going to discuss it this week. And i got to say, Walker, I was a little afraid when we agreed to do this that I would have occasion to alienate our dear listeners and our very faithful patrons. I don't think I'm in a position to do that. I'm feeling very good about this list. It's a good list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, more on that later to follow. So, Walker, what did we review last year? We reviewed, one
1: year ago, a game called Dice Realms. It uses this mechanism... Of where you can pry off the dice faces and add new ones. So it's sort of like a dice builder. Very much like a deck builder, but with dice. Uh, more so than the other, other ones that I've seen so
2: far. Absolutely. I have not played it since we reviewed it. And it was it was okay. I don't really dislike it. Here's here's though, upon reflection, one of the reasons why I'm very glad to have moved off of Dice realms. I really like Thomas Lehman as a game designer. I like a lot of his game designs. I don't think that anyone does tableau builders quite so well as Thomas Lehman. But in the context of Dice Realms, it really does represent, I think, one of the things that I, as a hobbyist, am trying to move away from, which is to say a very light, non-player interactive, highly variant, physically large, expensive product, right? And I think that as a consumer... Whether I were to significantly downsize my collection or keep it as large as it is, I don't know that that's the kind of product I want anymore in my life at, in a in a regular rotation. I would much rather have something like the physical and economic footprint of something along the lines of just to pick some random stuff that's in small boxes wildly across weights and genres. Things like The Crew, things like Paku Paku, things like Llama Dice, things of that nature. Uh, cheap and Cheerful is wonderful. Uh, you know, and when you're comparing anything to, say, Regicide, which is an un- unfair comparison to the extreme, it's just Dice Realms is very large and very expensive. And I think even if you just want to limit it to Thomas Lehman joints, again, these are radically different games. It doesn't even stack up well next to Race for the Galaxy in terms of size and cost and bang for your buck. It was nice. Yep. I enjoyed it. There, but, there, you know, at there's, what cost?
1: There's, in a couple months, there's going to be an expansion coming out for it, Dice Realms Trade. So it's going to have some sort of trade theme to it. So if for those that enjoy Dice Realms, there will be more
2: stuff. If I had an opportunity to try that, I'd be interested in trying it. But at no point I've ever been interested in owning a copy of Dice Realms, suffice to say. Agreed. So that was our as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment to our Eurus Dice Realms. And now we're going to move on to the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? We got to play Lorenzo El Magnifico. I speak a little bit of Italian, Walker. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Do you want to know what, what the title means? Sure. Larry Il Magnifico. The Magnificent Larry. Magnificent? No, it says Magnifico. Oh. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay.
1: This is designed by Familia Bazzini, Vigiano Gilli, and Simone Luciani. And this is a game by Cranio Creations. And so I played this a year or so ago. They have an actual dedicated app on Steam where you can play the game. And it made it feel very disjointed. And I didn't enjoy it much. And I didn't understand it much. Playing it on the table uh, with a decent rules explanation uh, made it flow way better and was much more enjoyed by me and not only me everyone else at the table as well a decent rules explanation who gave that i don't know did someone give that decent rules explanation uh, when i, I was away from the table? i was so blown away by it mark i can't even remember where it's coming <laughs> from
2: no, I just I had forgotten until near the very end the very crucial rule <laughs> that if you're going to send one of your workers in this worker placement game to the same tower that someone else has already been, you have to pay f- uh, three three monies. This is very much in the same tradition of the Italian masters making money very tight. And indeed, that three three money cost is one of the key ways in which money becomes tight. I played Lorenzo il Magnifico a few years ago. I remembered being disenchanted with it, although I can't really remember why, but I was I was always vaguely curious about returning to it. And one of the things that really made me want to get it back to the table uh, since it was published in 2016 was, I think, actually a reaction to our plays of Nucleum and Great Western Trail New Zealand. Both games I enjoy, but the setup just leaves me feeling drained, right? And I'm not... I- I'm not here, just let me be very clear, I'm not here to say that things were so much better in the old days. I don't believe in the golden age. Some of my very favorite games were published in the past couple of years. But it is the case that I have noticed that there is a growing proportion, I think, of middleweight Euros with 21-step setup procedures. And Lorenzo Il Magnifico was very much of its time, there are four different decks of cards, and you have to set up three tiles at the start of the game. That's about it. More or less. More or less. And when you compare that to a lot of other offerings of similar weight, uh, a lot of contemporary designs want to push that envelope in terms of setup very, very, very far. So I was very pleased from that perspective. And it felt it ended up feeling very, very clean, especially since the scoring conditions, albeit there are four different kinds of cards you can acquire, most of your points are just going to come from cards. Getting the cards, running the cards. It also has another feature in Lorenzo and Magnifico, that I very much appreciate more and more when it comes to Euros. I emphasize this a lot in the context of Voidfall, which is if you're gonna make production interesting. Give me an opportunity to trigger production on my terms, gamify production not so it's just not part of a laborious round structure. If you can make it interesting, you probably should. And that's one of the key hooks, if you will, to borrow a Walker term for Lorenzo Il Magnifico. You, you're building an engine that you don't have to run doing production lines, and that dovetails with the worker placement and dice manipulation and a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, It was really nice. Yeah, there's three games this
1: week that all sort of have the same sort of mechanism where it's very much about timing. Workers can all go to the same sort of place, but getting them first is key because everyone that comes later has to pay a cost. Mm. And there are many spaces like this. Like you said, running your engine, you could run your engine and get a lot out of it. Or have to pay a little bit and not get so much out of it because right. I have to pay. And and figuring out where to go first. Like, I could do that, but then someone else is going to take this other thing that I need. Right. And it's
2: very tight on the timing, very tight on the resources. Or even most directly, if I wait to get this other card into my engine first, yes. <laughs> running that would be better. But by that point, running it might not be so opportune. Yeah, and it's a relative parsimony of resources, both in terms of type and quantity, a relative parsimony of sources of points, you know, all the things that I really really like in a medium-weight Euro. And so, I, as I say, I'm really confused as to why I didn't appreciate it when I first played it. It might have been the company, it might have been just my mood at the time. It might just be that I'm now looking at some of those Euros that were released in, say, 2015, 2016, 2017, and now I'm, I'm appreciating the fact that they speak to a design idiom and aesthetic that I perhaps feel like contemporary Euros are moving away from. But I don't know. I, this is, uh, I'm going to have to investigate this a little bit more. There were a bunch of expansions. I'm curious to try a couple of them. They don't seem to add too, too much to the rules bloat. They add a little bit, of course, but it seems manageable. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to go back. Well, the flow was there, right? We went, oh, yeah. We got through
1: that game very quickly. And the one part that dates it, maybe it was the one thing that you didn't like back then, was this constant threat, right? You had to oh, like move up the spirit track, right? Or The faith track. The faith track.
2: I, li- I liked it in part because it was really leaning on some cute uh, theming and some variability so at the end of each uh, at the end of each other round so at the end of rounds two four and six if you've not accumulated enough faith points you're in- you get excommunicated by the church which as a theming as a-, as a theming flourish I appreciate and number two the penalty of getting excommunicated is the key source of variability from game to game there's a large number of different effects and they can all vary now. I didn't really feel that variability because none of us got excommunicated. So perhaps I'll be disenchanted with this mechanism going forward. But that at least was... I thought it was cute.
1: Yeah, true. And it—and at first it seemed as though it was an all or nothing type thing. But they're sort of stacking. You can sort of choose which ones you're going to be excommunicated from. Yes. So you, you might get excommunicated, but then you're sort of maybe forgiven. And so yep. if you make it up to the next uh, sort of checkpoint, then you'll be fine. Right? So you can take all three hits, or you can, you know, choose which ones you're going to lose.
2: You're right, actually. You're probably right to point out that the reason why we avoided excommunication at every step was probably because A, we're new players, and B, we're conservative, because it probably makes more sense points-wise to take one of those hits for more points, because the way the track works, the way the faith track works is if you get excommunicated, you do not cash in your faith points and your faith points start getting worth more and more points later on in the track. So it's easier to run up the track if you take the hit earlier on. And so in hindsight, it probably would have been smarter to do that.
1: Especially that last one, right? You hit all those points at the end, maybe. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? That is Fantastic Magnificent Larry,
2: or <laughs> known here as Lorenzo El Magnifico. So let's uh, keep on with the Italian masters, and let's keep on with people who are uh, pretty fantabulous uh, from Italy. Leonardo da Vinci's Codex Lester. This is the republication of Architoka's first published design, namely Leonardo da Vinci, back when the Earth was young and worker placement as a mechanism was still cooling. And this is a republication by Dice Tree Games, the Korean publisher, in a very lavish production production. I will criticize, though, before we get back into the substance gameplay decision, one thing that I really do feel is missing from the theme is, given that in Codex Luster, what you're doing is you're manufacturing slash fabricating the inventions of Leonardo da Vinci as represented these cards, they made the actual Leonardo da Vinci sketches on those cards so small that they are practically invisible. And consequently, when compared to the previous edition where the actual drawing of the thing, you know, ornithopters and weird tanks and bizarre stuff like that, it was more prominent. And so it was a little cooler. As it is now uh, from the last session we played, Specifically, uh, I don't remember what any of them were. I was about to say I can't. I couldn't tell you a single one. Yeah, a bit of a missed opportunity there. It's it's unfortunate. Yeah. Not that it would have been particularly theme forward in either case, but obviously, if you're if you're going to name your game after the book in which these sketches appear maybe give it a little bit more prominence. And it's weird, because there's this weird border effect that they give. Like, they give a border of some sort of abstract representative parchment, blah, blah, blah. It's not that there's too much game information to crowd up the, the drawing. They just deliberately made the drawing real tiny. It's 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 strange. Anyway, what did you think of Codex Luster, the second playthrough for you, Walker?
1: It was still fantastic. It has so many unique sort of mechanisms in it that I haven't seen in any other game. So what I was talking about before... It is a worker placement game where getting into the places matters because it's not though you block them, but it is definitely ranked for whoever gets in there first. And that's sort of area majority on top of that. And then once everyone has placed all of their workers, and there's also a really interesting mechanism about placing those workers too, where you get one opportunity to place your master, one opportunity to place your pupils in each space. So that's very much a timing thing where you're trying to hold out to the end so you can sort of take that area majority at the last minute. And then you cycle through all the spots and that has this very interesting sort of rotation mechanism where the reason why you want to get in there first is because whoever has the very majority and, and because you want to get there first, because if there's ties, then you automatically win the ties because you got there first. And because the first person there gets to do that action for free and then the next person gets to decide if they want to do it for two and then three and then four and then it everyone gets that opportunity so if everyone passes it goes back to the first player and they get the opportunity to do it again but for for money and it keeps doing that until it, the fourth threshold is hit or everyone passes and that that's such a very interesting in how it works out and and opportunity costs and and
2: and i really great. i really appreciate it there just a couple of euros come to mind where money is victory points and you really have to be careful about the money you spend. That's one of the things that I really appreciated for what it's worth about Chinatown and some of the early deals because it's all just a question of trading points away for the cash that you're making and so you have to figure out how much you're willing to go in the red to pursue these basic tasks. The same thing is true of uh, Medici Reiner Knizia's bidding game, and in Leonardo da Vinci, yeah, you can do that action multiple times, or you can do that action even though someone beat you out for it, but you have to pay victory points to do it, and that tension is delicious. I really appreciate that. I really feel like I'm taking a risk reward element in a way that I seldom do in a lot of euros. You know, usually you're usually trading some kind of resource for some victory points, or some kind of resource for some other resource, and so it's some abstracted economical calculation. But when you tell me I need to pay points to do this thing, And that gives it teeth in a way that a lot of other economic transactions don't. I'm really glad you like Codex, Lester. We played it this time with five. I think it scales really well, to be frank. Uh, I don't think five is is its ideal player count. I think my preferred would probably be four, but I would happily play with either three or five. And the the competition scales rather neatly in all cases, just by virtue of how the, the tasks work. The other
1: mechanism I really love is building these actual inventions. You have these workshops that you get to improve. Not only do you get to make them bigger, but you get to add robots to them. And bigger means you can add more workers, these same workers that you need for the area majority. So it's this decision, do I have to run this machine? Because when you say I'm going to build this this invention, it'll tell you how many weeks it takes. Let's say seven. That means you have to put in seven work hours. So technically seven workers will have to go to this area. There's, you know, plus or minus you know, with the robots. Right. But technically, eventually you're going to have to send seven workers to this workshop. But there's not seven spaces, so you can't do it in one turn. So you have to figure out how many turns it's going to take, how am I going to improve it so it'll take less workers, all of these things. Very interesting. And I can't wait
2: to play it again. Yeah, and and that dovetails with the board placement. Sometimes in some rounds, I didn't put workers on the board at all. And you might say, oh, well, that that just means there's less player interaction. No, au contraire. I put the workers all in my own private workshop because I needed to finish an invention before somebody else did. (laughs) And so I needed to snake it out from under them real quick. There were some other rounds where I didn't interface with my workshops at all. And yeah, you, just knowing what to do with your workers and when is really delightful. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Codex Lester in the original version, I thought was a very solid core engine, and I didn't like some of the choices they made with how the engine was implemented. And Codex Lester, I think, is just refined enough that it is now uh, supremely solid, and I'm very, very glad that you enjoy it as much as you do. That's Leonardo da Vinci's Codex Lester, designed by Chang-Yung Beck, Flaminia Bersini, Virginio Gili, also of Lorenzo Il Magnifico, Stefano Luperto and Antonio Tinto, published by Dice Tree Games. Those latter Italian designers published collectively under the name Architocca. Another game by Italian designers,
1: Darwin's Journey. This is a game we streamed on Saturday, designed by Simone Luciani and Nestor Mangone, put out by Thunder Griffin Games. And yet another game where getting into these worker placement spots is important to get there first, because anyone that comes after uh, has to pay. Unfortunately, I feel that this is a sort of a problem in this game because the step it takes from going from three players to four players is such a huge difference. Yes. Because it has... I remember that. Three main worker spots. And uh, in a three-player game, that's what they are, three spots. But when you switch it to a four-player game, they become six spots. You put a divider down each of those books, and now they're different spots that you, you can go to and not have to pay. It's such a huge step that I think it... I'm not sure. It makes it awfully tight in a 3 yeah. player game.
2: Every time I've played with three players, I've played it with four players. I don't think I've ever played it with two, and I certainly haven't tried the solo mode. But every time I've played it with three, I look at that first round, I look at the action spaces at Darwin's Journey, and I look at the third player, and I look what's left for them, and it's like, this stinks. Being the third player in a third-player game looks awful. There's There might be some deeper, hidden strategy. That makes things so much, it just seems so much tighter, yes. And I remember that when you go up to four, it just, the pressure is just lessened considerably for everyone. It, it's a strange stepping stone. Yeah, Darwin's journey is is good. I don't think, even just comparing it to Lorenzo the Magnifico and Leonardo da Vinci's Codex Lester, just a couple of other uh, designs, it doesn't strike me nearly as tight, nearly as focused and consequently i I find it and it also sprawls a little bit in terms of that setup that that's thing that I was talking about. It's very much of its time right This is the evolution of of design theories, and it also it looks a lot nicer in a yes, lot of ways it is gorgeous, too, right? for if you sure. if if especially if you compare it to Lorenzo del Magnifico, which very much looks like a euro published about ten years ago and uh so yeah Dar- Darwin's journey is. A fascinating, uh, almost case study, if you just want to look at the evolution of a variety of design trends, yeah. What was interesting about this particular play is that every game,
1: uh, there's the top four actions that are always the same. And then you have this random set of six actions. And then within those six actions, two will be unlocked immediately. So they're going to be random every game. And the one that was unlocked immediately for our game was getting one of these purple seals. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. And so what I'm talking about with the seals are. All of your workers have sort of a special ability and all of these worker placements have a threshold. You have to have a certain color of, of seal in order to go there. And sometimes there, there are multiples. Like you have to have three reds and two blues in order to take this action. So you're constantly building up these workers and the purple seals are wild. So they can be anything, not only for the action spaces, but for these cards that you get to unlock during the game. So seeing as that that was available right from the start, it's not as though well we could take it from the start because it need, its threshold was kind of high. But the fact that oh, okay. Was unlocked and soon available, mm. and I seem to have got locked out from the
2: oh poor lockdown.
1: Yeah, it was it was an interesting mistake on my part um, because every round there is a goal, like much like these the games of today, where there's a, a goal to achieve at the end of it, of every round. Five rounds. The first two goals had to do with these seals. Ah. And you get to draft your starting worker seals, right? The first one was yellow, so I was like, okay, well, I'll just draft a couple of yellow workers to start with, and that'll get me well on my way. Unfortunately, that sort of locks you out of a lot of spaces, i.e., the space in order to get seals. <laughs> <laughs> so you do have a you do have a wild worker, and you do have you do start with a token that you get to substitute in a seal for, but still, the other two seem to very much. Focus on getting the seals. Their boards were completely filled by the end of the game. And so as you can see, I was mostly just locked out of that spot and found it very hard to get any advancement on my poor workers. So on Darwin's journey, he done left you behind. He done left me in his wake,
2: as That's it were. That's too bad. It was sad. That is Darwin's journey. Got to show Walker The North Provenance. This is a review copy sent to us by the designer, designed by John Cloudus of Small Box Games. This is the second iteration of The North. And John Cloudus's thing is two-player card games with multi-use cards and combos. And frankly, of this sort of broad genre of Cloudus-type games, which is to say games designed by John Cloudus, that feel very much like the oeuvre of John Cloudus, I'd have to say that The North and Omen... Uh, stand head and shoulders above the rest. I thoroughly enjoy the north. There's a a variety of rules quirks about the presentation of some small box games that constantly throw me for a loop. I'll, I'll just be specific in this instance. Some of the core rules are printed on the round summary. So the actual rules document is incomplete. It makes reference to the fact that there are more rules elsewhere. And as a rules explainer and as a consumer, that's not my preferred element. I I would rather there be redundancy. I respect the fact that John Cloudus and Smallbox Games is trying to keep the boxes, shall we say, small and to that end wants it to be just two sides of a small sheet of paper folded four ways. But in this case, I think it would have been worth the effort to maybe get that second sheet of paper in there. I don't know. Maybe that's some sort of weird production milestone where it would have doubled the cost. I can't say for sure. But as it is it always throws me through. Now, that having been said, the North Providence is a relatively simple game. You have your actions on 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 your turn, and largely speaking, you can trigger a variety of different effects on a variety of different cards, both in front of you and commonly available, and it is a race to cost your opponent points. Structurally, it is not entirely dissimilar to something like the Realms games or Shards of Infinity, not that not because it's a deck builder, although it kind of sort of is a little, but more because instead of scoring points, you're taking away points from the opponent. And The artwork is very, very grim and creepy in a very satisfying way, a sort of, there are all these machines that have been uh, sort of abandoned and now they're no longer fit to purpose and they're doing terrible, strange things and mostly we want to leave them alone, but maybe we need to reprogram them for our own purpose. And I enjoy the, the the combo element, the ability to play this card, which triggers a variety of other effects. And fortunately, it's not one of those things where, first of all, it's it's not multiplayer, and the, the chains of effects are relatively self-contained. So you get the satisfying element of combo generation without the aspect of someone at the table drumming their fingers saying, Are, are, are you done your turn yet? Are you going to... Do I get to... Can I... Oh, no? Okay, fine. So... The North Providence, I think, is a very, very good example of a two-player quick card game. I find it extremely satisfying, and I also find it very visually appealing. What did you think of the North Providence, Walker? I enjoyed it.
1: Another cool hook about it is the fact that the backs of the cards aren't like traditional all the same. They use even the backs; of the cards are yeah are different as well. There's sort of uh, I, I don't say. Six different territories, maybe, maybe a couple more, about six different territories. And so they're divided up into, and so it was a little off putting at first because you can sort of see the back, so you know what's there. So it sort of was odd.
2: You you found that a little disarming, yeah. Yeah.
1: So it was odd at first, but then I realized, well, there's only six different ones. So it, you know, wouldn't be, you know, you can't really tell what's on the other side.
2: Yes, yes. There's not really an ability to memorize the deck and know that you need a certain thing to come up and therefore exploit it. Yes. You are, however, allowed to look at both sides of any cards that are on the table. So, for example, I had an effect that allowed me to take one of the four cards in the face-up display and play it to its other side, to its facility side. And so on a a couple of occasions, I just had to, you know, look at Fish again, (laughs) look at the backside of all the cards, like, oh, there's the one that I want, okay, I'll move on and do something else. Uh, But that's just, again, uh, John Cloudus loves multi-use cards, and that's just yet another way in which the cards can be employed, so... Once once I'm able to re-internalize all the rules, it's very much the kind of sandbox where it's rules minimal but effect heavy. And I I, I appreciate that. And so it's not difficult to remember how cards move in various ways. That's one of the ways in which, so superficially, uh, two designers that kind of work in the same kind of idiom are uh, John Cloudus on the one hand and Carl Chudek on the other, in that they both love multi-use cards, and they love card games where the same card might find its way in different locations at various times, doing different things as it goes. The, a salient difference, though, and I love a lot of uh, Carl Chudek games, but Carl Chudek games, getting cards from point A to point B is sometimes the kind of thing where as a rules explainer, you can only say, well, it depends, there might be some other effect that does that. Or if you're playing Glory to Rome, for example, you might look at some of the player aids with arrows showing how all the various cards go. It'll break your brain. Uh, and, and make the game look more complicated than it is. Whereas, John Cloudus works in a far more minimalist vocabulary in terms of how the card games work. I mean, for one thing, he mostly does two-player card games instead of multiplayer card games, and that simplifies things to a certain extent. But consequently, the flow of cards, how they move from one area to another, is vastly easier to grasp, in my experience.
1: Yeah, it gave me a little bit of a feel of Booky uh, Book Pew-Pew, book, where you sort of are... Wizards more... of the Grimoire, for yes, those so... that are <laughs> shaded in Walker speak. You were You both got to choose from the same sort of... Pool. Mm. You didn't. It was all. It all came from the same deck, and you could create all these like interesting combos true. with all the cards that were available.
2: Yeah. Yes, but unfortunately, by virtue of the fact that in the North Providence, on the back of the cards, it's all the facilities. uh We didn't get reminded about what the name of the game was it's by true. looking at the back of the cards. This that's one true. way in which Wizards of the Grimoire is much more transparent. I keep looking at the box. Yeah. 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 So that's the North Providence by John Cloudus and Small Box Games. I've yet to try the original of the North. I really should. Speaking of two-player
1: card games, we got Sale back to the table, constantly enjoying Sale. It is a very quick,
2: trick-taking game that is... Seems difficult for us, apparently. Or maybe
1: just difficult for me.
2: We hit a hard wall, because we did scenario one with a great deal of facility. We did scenario two without much difficulty. And now scenario three is kicking our butts. But I like losing at co-op games. It's true. So I'm keen to figure it out. So a key thing with Sale is that at the end of every round, you're going to suffer a certain amount of damage. And there are various loss conditions assigned to damage. And I'm curious to see how much effort you need to do to specifically mitigate the damage versus making progress. Because there could be you can very easily end up in death cycles where you just pay too much attention to mitigating damage and you don't make enough progress, or the opposite is true. We've had the problem with the opposite. We've, we've been paying too much attention to advancing the victory conditions, namely getting the boat from point A to point B, and consequently we've lost on account of damage. So I, I'm, I'm keen to see whether that equilibrium is, can be reached in a satisfying way. So we're enjoying Sale, designed by Akima... Akiyama Koryu and Korzu Yusei. Published by Allplay. Played another game of Mlem Space Agency, and again with two players. I'd really like to try Mlem with more players. This is a Reiner Knizia dice game, very quick, very straightforward, push your luck. Reiner Knizia hates the number six on dice. He tries to avoid doing it wherever possible. I don't know that I like Mlem as much as I like uh, Picamino or Sushi Bar, which are his uh, ch- bird-themed bone-related uh, food dice games with dominoes. It's a niche. Yeah, I was gonna say that's that's quite a. It's a niche. It's an uh, gotcha. gotcha. It's a thing. Like, what do you want? I mean, to be fair, so is uh, cat-based space agencies. Yeah, it's a definite vibe. That's for sure. And this time we have tried it with a couple of modules. And they're very simple and very straightforward, and I very much approve. I'm looking forward to, to, to trying more of the modules. As I say, it's I, I've yet to play a Renner Canuti dice game where I'm like, "What's the point of this?" He knows what he's doing. It's very satisfying in various ways. Uh, some of the component decisions are a little bit strange. Again, like I, 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 is neoprene now so inexpensive that you can just put it in everything? S- apparently, instead of cards, even you want
1: to shuffle neoprene, <laughs> man. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We've tried that before
2: with CloudSpire. It was not no. Do not encourage that. Thank you very much. Uh you've been playing Lem more than I have. Uh you've played it multiplayer. Uh, do you find the dynamics are significantly changed? A little bit. A little more uh thinking about what astronauts to cast cat castronauts. Cast castronauts? Ca- castronauts? Mm, uh, I don't uh, think so. We're f- gonna have a workshop.
1: Fela- um that go into the that go into the ship because people start putting the saboteur in or whatever, you know, their names they have or ones that they want to push further or Cosmo Necos. Cosmo Necos, Nailed it. Sounds good. And yeah, sorry to interrupt. Multiplayer is good. Uh, it it gives me, like I said, it's like, can't stop, but is it better than can't stop? I sort of think it is. It's got a little more decision space in there, putting in the different astronauts and still has the same sort of pusher luck and, and the, the certain dice that you need.
2: Oh, I definitely prefer to can't stop. It's faster for one. The texture of the rolls change as you go forward because you're losing dice and, and sometimes regaining dice. And so you have to worry about that. And the numbers you're looking for change over the course of a run. And perhaps most importantly, when you decide to stop, it is influenced by who is behind you, who is ahead of you, and what those other players might be inclined to do on this given round.
1: And, and like Can't Stop, where you have the lanes closing down, you have players putting out all their astronauts. As soon as someone has them all out, then the game ends. So it's the same sort of, you know, not only pushing luck, but sense of tension. Yep. Anyway. It,
2: it appeals to my conservative nature. <laughs> Just get all those astronauts out. Oh, this is a one-point moon? I don't care. Go. Go. Sit there. That is blem space agency
1: we finally finished my island this is designed by Reiner Kizi as well put out by cosmos it is a legacy type tile laying game
2: why didn't cosmos put out the Kizi game about space sorry I'm that, asking that is weird. I'm asking yeah. a stupid question yeah okay fine no, that's go a, on that's a, that's a good
1: question um so yes uh, it advanced it added more rules I think what it, it was it oh. was wait there was I think that's how it worked out. I think we should count it, right? There was twenty. How many
2: scenarios? Um, and, and,
1: and I think by the end of 24. it, there was there was that many, <laughs> that many
2: rules. Here, here's the big problem. I, I will confess that I very much turned a corner on my island. I very much, you know, chapters. I'm going to say four and five were kind of the peak point, and then I felt that chapters one, two, and three were kind of building towards it. And then we kind of turned a corner. One of the things that made me less enthusiastic about the later games of My Island was, as the chief rules explainer, I find it very difficult when there is a small set of simple rules for them to be like, okay, so of the three rules we introduced last chapter, you're going to stop using rules one and three. Rule two has changed a little bit. And then... you do this once or twice and there ain't no problem. But when you're doing that kind of mild tweaking over and over and over again, I can find it very difficult to track what's going on. And then, because I'm so frustrated with this experience trying to keep it tra- uh, in my own head, I then start lashing out at players asking very reasonable questions like, are we still doing the thing we did in episode 19? It's like, no. Episode 19 was done. We finished that at the end of episode 20. We're not in episode 21. We do something entirely different now. And i, I just... Forget, now granted, there are references for every chapter to be like, okay, here's the summary of everything you're going to be scoring this time. Jettison that stuff, bring in this other stuff. And for some reason, when the game is simple, I find it harder to process. I don't know why that is, but it definitely is the case. And oh my goodness, the pain. I think it is very similar to the pain of something like Calico. Just the tension, like every time you put down a tile, you're foreclosing a whole bunch of other opportunities, and every time you do that, you just feel like you're digging a huge grave. This is compounded by the fact that in the scoring conditions in my island, as time went on, they just kept giving you more and more ways to lose points. And I don't mean points over the course of the game. I mean those hard-won permanent legacy points that you got for winning games Gone because you didn't do the thing. You didn't finish the widget. Oh, we told you about the widget. We didn't tell you you're going to lose points, but you're going to lose points now because you didn't finish the widget. I'm like, I guess I should have known to finish the widget, but geez, come on, Reiner, let me know. Yeah, that... it was a lot. I, 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 I'm glad we finished it, but I genuinely disliked it by the end. Agreed. I think my look, my city, my a city I think was vastly preferable. Hexagons are the bestagons. I agree entirely. Uh, but my enthusiasm for my city uh, just maintained consistently in a way that my island didn't. Now, if I'd played them in reverse order, would I have the different reaction to both? I don't know. But I think that the overall introduction of rules and the way it was managed was done better in my city.
1: Yeah, the game seemed to flow a lot faster. Maybe the maps were too big. Maybe there was too many tiles.
2: Part of the problem was that we kept playing one chapter a sitting which is to say, sorry, one episode is setting, which is three chapters, three games back-to-back. Back. For For episode one, that ain't no thing. Three 20- to 30-minute games, no problem. But when all of these additional rules and tiles and considerations and trade-offs are being introduced, and suddenly they're 30- to 45 minutes each, that's a lot to be playing a light tile layer where every placement is pure pain. And so, that, it's just not my vibe. Yeah, glad it's finished. Glad we finished it. Yeah. This is the first campaign we finished in a long time. It's true. Oof, I, I I am going to glance. I have not yet glanced at the rules to play my island. After you're done with it, you know you flip over the board, and now it's it's just it's just a Reiner Knitzia tiling game. <laughs> Maybe bereft of all this institutionalized fear of losing all these points that I scored weeks ago because I didn't finish the 17th widget that was introduced in this new bag of stickers. I would enjoy it more, maybe. Or maybe it's now so poisoned me on the experience that I won't be able to tell. I'm also vaguely curious to, to crack open my city again and look at its permanent rule set. True. Anyway, questions to ponder for another time.
1: Yes, there's so many other very good tile layers that I don't know why we would want to ever go back.
2: Well, many of them designed by Reiner Knizia yes, as well. Exactly, <laughs> I believe. Just last week, when talking about Aqua Biodiversity, I'm like, there are a lot of really good light tile layers. You know, many of them by Reiner Knizia. I, when I was saying that, I was not thinking of my island. <laughs> there's a ver, but but again, just 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 to reiterate, there's a version of my island that I thoroughly enjoyed. We we passed it several playings ago, <laughs> and so I don't know what the permanent version looks like. I'm going to take a look. Just today, I was a little too my-islanded out. I was not in the mood to further investigate it. That is My Island by Reiner Canizia. So, I got to show Walker a game that is one of my favorite games of all time. This is Successors. We played the fourth edition of Successors. I had never played the fourth edition yet. I had mostly played the third edition. The differences between third edition Successors published by GMT and fourth edition Successors published by Phalanx are somewhat negligible. The key rules difference, actually, is that two optional rules from 3rd edition that I always played with are now standard rules in 4th edition. They introduce some new general powers which are marginal, and mostly they've just prettied things up. Now... I will point, I will start with the least important thing. They do a couple of graphical changes that I'm not a fan of. In the third edition, the name of every city was visible plainly on the board. In the fourth edition, the name of the city is covered up by the control marker. So if you don't remember where Pella is, or if you don't remember where Ekbatana is... You're going to be shuffling over these little... Wait, which one? I, I don't... Uh. Oh, you don't know your ancient Roman cities, Mark? Come on. Uh, Macedonian, sir. Oh, sorry, sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rome is a, a little a little further west. Anyway, uh, I have adored Successors for a very long time. It was the go-to multiplayer historical war game that I would play, honestly, several times a year back when I lived in Boston. Uh, we would order chicken from Wings Over Somerville. We would have a full war council. We would, we would uh, quibble and argue... Over which scrawled cocktail napkin on crayon was Alexander the Great's actual will, indicating that he left everything to whomever. Can I get before I get your your impressions of the game walker? Uh, can I can I give you my re- remembrance about how this this, uh, this session played out? Session? Yeah, sure. yeah. So what happened was Antipater was chilling out in Macedon, the obvious loyal heir of Alexander's vast empire. Again, it was scrawled on a cocktail napkin with uh, a tube of lipstick, actually this time, and. Perticus out in Babylon said, I'm going to do you a solid. I'm going to encase Alex's body in honey. I'm going to make a, a lovely ride for him to go. And I'm I'm just going to come and I'm going to escort it. And his illegitimate heir, Alexandros, I'm going to escort them all to Pella and we're going to have a nice coronation for you. And Antipater was like, great, solid, sounds awesome. And then, and then Perticus showed up and he looked left and he looked right. And you know what happened? It was sad, really. Greed corrupted him. And he said, you know what? This should all be for me. And then there was a great orgy of battle. The noble Antipater, upon his triumph, led the final charge. He sadly died. And then a minor general, whose name is lost to history, looked left, looked right, and said, I guess I get to run everything now? Uh, and a, t- a letter was sent to Ptolemy down in Memphis uh, saying, uh, congratulations, uh, you're the regent now. And he's like, I'm what? So <laughs> oh, Wait, what's been going on? Wait. Yeah, so, I mean, look, I, I, I very much appreciate that you marched the funeral cart all the way to Pella for me. Uh, it's a shame you decided to try to knife me near the end, though. That wasn't very nice. Yeah. Oh, you have a different recollection. I do. Really? I was invited
1: there. I don't remember that, I, but I keep I, going. And and they said that everything is good, everything is cool. We're going to crown the new king. Yeah. We're going to lay our friend to rest. Yeah. And there will be parties.
2: yes. I didn't realize it was a knife in my (laughs) back. So the thing that I love about successors, and this is something that is sadly very rare in multiplayer conflict games of any weight and of any duration and of any theme is how dynamic the movement is and how dynamic the victory conditions are. There are two different kinds of points, legitimacy points and victory points. The victory conditions, I think it'd be interesting to hear your impression are easy to internalize. There's the auto victory from points, but there's also a third way uh, to win, namely, if you control an air, it's the sum of both different times of points at the right time. If you control the air and you're not going to win that way, the air has a uh, <clears throat> a mysterious accident and is never heard from again. Don't ask. I'm sure they're fine. And you can get from one end of the map to the other. It's not so much about getting there, it's about knowing when and whom to attack because the moment you attack somebody, you might be paying the opportunity cost because you've abandoned the pretext of legitimacy of being Alexander's rightful heir and now you're clearly in it for yourself. And knowing when to cross that Rubicon to mix historical me- metaphors is one of the great decision points in Successors, and I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love everything about Successors, almost everything. What did you think about it, Walker? I enjoyed
1: it. I love that, like you said, the different two kinds of different victory points. You can't just lean heavily into one. You can't just say, I'm going to get all the legitimate heirs and then I'm going to win, because it's, so there's just not enough of them there. Yeah. You have to also get some victory points by controlling land, and then do one of the big sort of legitimate Things like bury Alexander's body
2: in the right place. You can't yeah. just
1: you can't just ditch it somewhere. Well, you can, but
2: that just big, stops
1: other people from. Yes,
2: yeah. The, the big money is burying it in Pella. Yeah, just so. Yeah, and one of the uh, unfortunately the dynamics of this particular session in one way it was really ideal for new players in one way it wasn't. The way in which it was ideal was the position that i was dealt was that i was given the most valuable point generating provinces at the very beginning of the game which means that i'm the one you can attack without losing anything in the process which is good because if somebody's going to be in that catbird seat they had best be in a position to understand the risks and challenges involved now the downside is is that the player with the most experience is the one who starts out in the lead uh and because I knew I was likely going to be in the lead for a while, starting off in Egypt means you're going to start off with the lead. If you can start off with Egypt, you get six victory points it's' it's, it's a big deal. and consequently, I was in a position to kind of set the tempo of, of of military aggression, which again, both good and bad, good because I was in a position to throw my weight around and bad in the in the position because I basically had to bully portions of the table anytime they they intruded on my territory because that was kind of my job. But that's again how dynamic successors is. Uh, Walker just started out with Babylon, which means that where Alexander's body is going to be is largely a function of how much Walker decides to press the issue. Then there was Huey, who was in control of the Hellespontine, which means that if someone's going to stop the Western expansion of both the the Babylonians and sometimes even the Egyptians, it's going to be Huey. Anyway, so there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. I love the dynamics of it. Uh, As I said, I love almost everything about Successors. The changes are fine. I'm okay with the changes, so get the 4th edition if it's what's available. Get the 3rd edition if it's what's available, too. You're not missing much. It is a marvelous design of card-driven wargaming, and I'm very, very glad that I was able to play it. Well, the cards are very much
1: like a sort of like a Twilight Struggle. Knowing what right. the cards can can do is very important. That is true. There were some that I found a little questionable, but other than that, because one, like I was taking the body to a certain place and there was a card that just allowed someone to, just, to take that away from me. Take the funeral card? Yes. It was just play the card. You t- If it's two spaces away, you just take the funeral card. I thought that was... Are you sure? 99% sure.
2: Because you can do that with uncontrolled female relatives of Alexander.
1: It was like a treachery card or some such thing. And I got it twice. Luckily, I got it. And no one else got it. I was reading it. and It's like, thank God I got this card twice. And so I just had to discard it. But having that happen in the middle of the game would be quite odd. That would be terrible. And there's other cards like that, like no, like I said, it's not so much as it it's a take that, but knowing what the cards are are is very important, and I think on multiple
2: plays that it would pay off. Well, allow me to stress one way in which the development from Phalanx was actually for the good. There's one card that works that way called the Silver Shields. Which, the first time you play it, it works as a normal card, and then thereafter becomes a surprise card. It's a reaction card, because the Silver Shields were basically the elites of the elites of Alexander's old army. The problem was that after Alexander was dead, their loyalties became, shall we say, somewhat flexible. And they showed up on various sides of various other conflicts somewhat unexpectedly. It's like, I thought you guys were working with me, it's like, now we changed our minds. And... The way that it worked in the GMT version is that almost every time a new player got that card, they could not figure out how it worked. In the Phalanx edition, and I'm, I'm I'm stressing this because very often Phalanx messes things up in some of their presentations, and I'm the first to criticize them when they do this. Like their Hannibal Rome versus Carthage edition had a number of very, very strange misprints and problems. Same thing with Hamilcar. Uh, but... The way that it works at the Phalanx Edition is there is a copy of the Silver Shields that works as a normal card in the deck and when you play it it gets removed from the game and gets replaced with the surprise version that details how it works. And so there's no opportunity for similar confusion there. So as a rules explainer or someone who's used to the game I'm very, very glad that they phrased things that way. And it's hardly it's hardly surprising that the game has stood the test of time. It was originally designed by Richard Berg and Mark Simonich, who are two titans in the historical wargaming industry. Uh, Richard Berg sadly has passed away re- recently. Mark Simonich designer of the aforementioned Hannibal Rome versus Carthage, which is one of the all-time classics of contemporary modern wargaming. Successors, I, I genuinely think, is is their masterwork. And I was very, very glad that it got returned in print. Are you done? Well, I could talk about Successors for another 50 minutes. I know. And those are the games we played this week. Now a quick break to pay
1: some bills. Now we're back with the news, and why it doesn't matter. Mark Lifeboats is coming back in to print. If you think your group has a problem with <laughs> with with player interaction and 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 take that and and, and old grudges and, that and, will and, mysteriously
2: yeah, reappear, this this will be
1: great because it it forces all of that and it's part of the game <laughs> and leads to hilarity. So if if you think your group is too into co-ops, This is the
2: game that you need to introduce to them. Some people might look at a game like Chinatown and say, I don't want to trade plots of land for laundromats. I want something with more teeth. And then you might say, well, look at a game like The Resistance where you're trading in loyalty and say, no, 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 no. I want to trade in whether or not I'm going to let you drown. That's what I want to do. That's what negotiation means for me. Yes. That is lifeboats for you. You're kicking people out of the boats. You're pleading
1: for for your poor meeple's life. (laughs) Yep. Yep. (laughs) And it is a a great game. I'm glad it's getting back into print. This is going to be put out by Broadway Toys Limited. Lifeboats.
2: Mike Hutchinson, the designer of Gaslands and A Billion Suns, among other things, is running a survey to try to... Pull interest in Gaslands and Gaslands' future. He's going to be devoting a lot more efforts in going forward. He says to more Gaslands content, and he'd like to have a little bit of direction about where to go. So, if you're at all interested in Gaslands as well, you should be. And if you've played in the past, uh, by all means, give him a give him give him a shout out. Good data is hard to come by. In this niche industry, we've run surveys in the past, and we found it very, very helpful, and we were very thankful that people participated. So if you have any interest in Gasline's future, please do go fill out the survey. The link is in the episode notes. So Eric Lang is putting out a new game with Hasbro. It's going to be
1: co-designed with Ken gruel and it's going to be called Life in Retera. It's this very interesting sort of tile-laying town-building game. It looks very interesting. Life in Retera. All right, this is a div- episode divisible by five. In fact, it's episode 300. So I'm going to go on and on about the Patreon. So if you decide to support us with Patreon, you get access to our exclusive Discord, you get our newsletter, access to unedited episodes, ad-free, as soon as they're recorded, with all the pre-show banter. Oh, there's banter a- all right. Including the puh-, puh puh which is a... puh puh, puh. you missed puh- a puh-, puh there. Sorry, there's another puh. It's like our... We do like this sort of pick where we have lists, this, this particular month or segment is about sports games. We choose our little docket of sports games, and then our listeners on the discord get to vote whichever, you know, group of games they like the most. You also have exclusive bonus content, our bi-weekly show, Pledge of a Difference, where we, we discuss what's hot on Kickstarter. Mark has periodical shows like Bloat and SWAT Guy Labs. Plus, you get early exclusive access to shows like Sizzler. And in the Discord, you get to vote on what games we're going to
2: review. And you also get free games. Now keep in mind, this is uh, Walker is going through escalating pledge levels. Uh so <laughs> yes. All of this is available at patreon.com slash swag. Uh, Keep in mind, you don't get the free games uh, necessarily at the earliest level, just to be very clear. But it is available eventually. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: And if you don't want to support us on Patreon, there's other ways you can support us as well. You can leave reviews on podcast sites. You can inform publishers about games you want us to review or games that you purchased because we reviewed them. You can do the name drop when people talk about these are great. You know, uh podcast for board games. You can throw our name in there. Any
2: exposure for us is fantastic. That is the end. I'm sorry it took so long. That's fine. I can uh, promise you two things. First of all, there is going to be a cavalcade of Patreon exclusive content this week. There's gonna be two episodes of Bloat and an episode of Pledge of Indifference. It's gonna be wild. Three bonus episodes. Crazy. Afloat. I know wild, wild. But most importantly, and I mean this, I mean this very sincerely. Uh, the most sincere form of support that you can offer us is to give us some of your time because that is, as Walker has said a number of times, most eloquently, it is your most valuable resource. And if you decide to spend some time with us, that is the support we treasure the most. That having been said, I can't deposit it in the bank. So we would also appreciate support through Patreon. But nonetheless, we don't want to in any way <laughs> imply that we do not appreciate each and every listener of So Very Wrong About Games. So thank you very much for your support in whatever form that it takes. And with that, let us call an end to the news and why it doesn't matter, and let us move on to our topic this week, which is the Patrons Top 20. This is an opportunity to spotlight the tastes of the people who have contributed on Discord to the compiled data crunching. First, I want to thank uh, the one that is known as Frank.
1: He is one of our Discord members, and he he is the one that curates this group. He gets everyone's uh, BoardGameGeek username and he puts it into this website called Geek Group, and it compiles all the data. We've compiled a top twenty list of our listeners that are taking part. No, this is the way. This is the way.
2: So we we have uh, talked a lot about some of these games, less so about other games. But but let's just get started. Uh, let us start with number twenty, of course, because we're going gonna... to of course. Build excitement and tension Ooh, and anticipation that's true,
1: yeah. what, in honour of Tim Curry. What is going to be number one? Mark, I don't know. I haven't looked at this list at all. It's like scrolled off my... Anyway, let's go. No, no, no. That, that... <laughs>
2: <laughs> we don't phone it in that badly. Number 20 is Antica 2 by Matt Gertz. One of my top 10 games of all time. And an absolutely glorious uh, Euro-style Civ-adjacent type thing in the mould of Sid Meier rather than uh, Tresham in, the, in that there's no trading. Uh, I I was delighted to see Antica. M- uh, not a lot of people talk about Antica. Uh, we do a lot, so I guess it's not surprising that it's on the list. That's going to be a recurring theme. Yeah, fantastic game. Wish we could play it more. I'm glad.
1: I'm so glad. Like this begin this month so far. This uh, new year has started off great. Not a huge glut of new games. Going back and playing the older ones that we yes. enjoy. Uh, the feeling has been much better, and I'm hoping that I can trim down. The, you know the the games that come in this year.
2: Yes, absolutely. We are still going to try to make sure that we can offer you uh, cutting-edge takes on new stuff, but at the same time, just for the sake of our own hobby life and for our own peace of mind, it is nice to be able to go back to perennial classics. And indeed, when it comes to the perennial classics of our shared collections, the works of Matt Gertz do feature prominently in there, and Antica 2, I think, is his best game thus far. Very much looking forward to his future game, Seven Empires. Yes. Yes. Next up at 19, we have a game that you've never played. I have not played, and I have never talked about on the podcast because I played it before I was a podcast. That is Bus, originally by Splatter and republished recently, and coming out by the same company. I think Capstone did it. Yes, What's Capstone is 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 reprinting and their. Redoing it again. Yes, this is a, the uh, a very rare instance of Splatter licensing a game out to somebody else. Yeah, Bus was one of those kind of, I, and I think this is going to be true of a lot of the games on this list that I don't like very much. I respect it more than I enjoy it. It's very, I would put it in the same large bucket. This bucket is getting larger and larger, by the way, as Calico. It's like, I see what you're doing. You're doing it real well. This hurts. Yeah, it's, a, it's very much a
1: splatter <laughs> game where you can destroy yourself. Oh, yeah. And it can be done in the first turn. I'm not sure. I like, I remember reading the rules and being ready to teach it, like, two or three years ago during, you know, pandemic, we were going to play it on uh tabletop simulator. Yep. So I can't remember very much how it works, but it's very much spending. It's a time traveling, delivering passenger type game. And there's a way that you can just cycle through all your resources in the first turn and be done.
2: Yes. Yes. Because your, your time travel ability, <laughs> I, I don't know that that's quite a present danger, uh, but yes, it is absolutely something that could be done. Yeah. It's the intersection of public transit and time travel, which, eh, a bit of a tired theme, sure, yeah. but you yeah. might as well give it a shot. Number 18 is Trois, which is spelt Troyes and is pronounced by many people. This is not me casting shade, just a description as Trois By Sébastien Dijardin, Javier Georges, and Alain Orban, these are the same people who did Black Angel. We reviewed Black Angel when it came out. Uh, Trois, we've talked about a couple times on the show. It's never really grabbed me, honestly. It's it's strange. I want to like it, but I, I can't get there.
1: It's interesting. very much a... Uh... You, I think, believe... Oh, yeah, it's been so long. Dice Draft placement. Dice, yeah. dice placement, Then you can yeah. take dice that belong to other people, and then you get money income, and then there's a, a changing sort of victory point tiles at the end.
2: Yep. My, my my chief beef with Trois, for what it's worth, was that I always felt like I wanted to know what the Era 3 cards were going to be, because th- those are the ones that give you a huge quantity of points, and I sometimes felt like I was just wasting time before I, I knew what I needed to do in the first case. Maybe greater familiarity with the deck would have helped with that, but... And I I kind of enjoyed it, but it didn't really grab me. That's number 18.
1: Number 17 is Brass Burning Him. It's number one, I believe, on the board game geek list. Oh, them geeks, they love it. They know it. And it's very much, it's a card. You have a a hand of cards, and you have to associate these cards where you're going to put buildings and where you're going to put track. And it has this interesting sort of, uh, the more money you spend, the later you're going to go on in the next turn. Love that part of it. But as we saw with Nucleum, I just, I like that a little more freedom better.
2: Yeah. And uh, I'll say the same thing I always say about brass. I like brass. I prefer Age of Industry. It's cleaner. There we go. I've said the thing. Number 16 is a game we both love. So
1: Clover. A fantastic game by Repo Games. They seem to hit it out of the park constantly with these party games. It's word association, much like uh, code names, where you have these tiles of cards that line up to words, and then you have to write in a word that uh, associate associates them both together.
2: So I find it interesting that in the top 20, this is the only word association game. It's arguably even on the only party game. So no codenames, no Just One. I personally prefer both codenames and Just One to that. Uh, I'm actually surprised if if, if there were going to be a, a, a pick—I like So Clover just fine, Yeah, just to be clear. I'm not like, why is this on the list? I'm surprised that it wouldn't be displaced by something like Decrypto, right? Agreed. If Decrypto had been at number 16 and it would be the only kind of word association, vaguely partyish game, I would have been less surprised. So I find the So Clover being so much higher than everything else a little surprising, that's all. Next up is a game that I love and Walker does not at number 15. We have Sidereal Confluence, Trading and Negotiation in the Elysium Quadrant. I wonder if it was a lot shorter than I would like it. Oh, it's, yeah. I'll, I'll, I've said it before about other games, and I've said it about Sidereal Confluence. Two hours of negotiation is a lot of negotiation, and a lot of people wear that out. It was my chief beef with um, New Angeles, by the way. I really liked New Angeles. I played it the once, but three hours of negotiation is a lot. A huge amount. And so, Cedarle Confluence is still too much for a lot of people. I understand that. On the topic of too much, number 14, Food Chain Magnate, the second splotter on the list. Yeah, I don't think you mean too much as in, like, as in, I think
1: you're talking about the new uh, game found sort of thing that was too <laughs> much. Well, that's it is a lot. So, Lucky Duck Games has just reprinted or is about to reprint yes. Food Chain Magnet. They Another got,
2: instance of Splatter licensing out of design. They yeah. did a
1: crazy reprint with all sorts of plastic and and new box inserts. And yep. No
2: new rules, complete reprint of the base game and the expansion. I have the original Splatter edition. We did not pony up the vast quantities of money for the plastic one. And it is just a fantastic game. It is very much a Splatter game. Unforgiving, rules-light, massive sandbox. And the, yeah. and
1: the massive
2: sort of... Unforgiving part about this is that there are all these sort of
1: achievements and whoever gets the achievement first will get that achievement no one else will get it so you can sort of either follow somebody and get it at the same time or do your own thing and take achievements away from other people and they're they're not only just like oh you get points they are special abilities that you have for the rest of the game and they are game breaking and incredible and you're going to have this odd mix that some people have some people share and it's just a great part of the game. So that's the part
2: that rewards experience. The part that I really like, which is the most cutthroat of it all of all, I think, is the fact that any almost any sale you make is a sale someone else ain't making. And just the competition to undercut your your opponents is just so fierce and delightful. I drank your milkshake. And then manipulating the market with advertising. Oh, yeah.
1: It's like, oh, everyone wants lemonade now. Yeah. They don't want your burgers. Or they want your burgers, but they
2: have to have it with lemonade. They would would sooner die than have a burger without a lemonade. Yeah, it's so good. So they will pay five times as much for my burger-lemonade combo as compared to your gutter offerings. Yeah, it's a great game. Number 13, which I think of the past few years is actually right up there with a design I respect and want to love, but can't really enjoy very much, which is PAX Premier 2nd Edition. I love everything about it. The physical design, the time period, the kind of politics it's trying to evoke, the relative rules light, but sandboxy nature of things. Not exactly like Splatter, but somewhat more like a PAX game, actually. And I just, every time I play it, I'm just like, I don't I'm not feeling it. And I I'm a little hard-pressed to say why, but I I certainly don't begrudge its its position on the list. I understand why people love it. I have no difficulty doing so. It's just eh. I, I I it's not a game for me, but I I can see
1: why people enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> Next up is number 12, the only dexterity
2: game on the list, Mark. It's it's a little sad, but like, if you're going to have one dexterity game I think I'm obliged for the sake of patriotism. I suppose. And national pride to yes. say it ought to be Crokinole. True. And I, I, do, I do appreciate the fact that this is one area of hobby gaming that, since I don't really do tabletop miniatures very much anymore, and I never did it this way, that I miss, there's a whole bunch of hobbies adjacent to the one that I have where you can really get beautiful, handcrafted works of art. Right? I don't do anything like that. And I look at chess sets and Go boards and crocodile boards and people who paint their own miniatures. I'm like, that is gorgeous, and I'm not there with you. <laughs>
1: I don't want any of that.
2: I don't want any. Of that. Well, I, no, and I wish. Like, look, if there were some, if somebody could come up with a really, like, shockingly beautiful, uh, like the way Whirly Gig Games does things. Uh, version of Tigers and Euphrates, I would give them far more money than I should. Well, like but I said, I, went there, I skimmed that pool of of
1: Sabruto. I also have looked into <laughs> yeah. Crokinole boards as well, and yeah. that is yet another world upon itself
2: as well. It is, it is. Crokinole is not my favorite fucking game by a long stretch, but again, I respect. I respect it. You got to respect the history. And that was number 12. Coming at
1: 11, we've talked about finishing legacy games yeah. like My City. This is another one we finished, and this is Pandemic Legacy Season 1. I think my favorite of all the pandemics
2: so far... Of, of all the legacy pandemics or pandemics generally? Uh, pandemic legacies. Yeah. Uh, I would have to agree. Um, I didn't like the big reveal. It, I found it a little tiresome. A little tired, even at the time. Far more so now, I'm not going to spoil anything. But at the time, rem- it, it, it's, it's important to remember... Legacy games hadn't been done to death, and campaign games hadn't been done quite to death either, and so the novelty of the Legacy format was still so electrifying. It wasn't quite like that time playing Risk Legacy and you open up a box and it's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe they did that and went there, but it was still enough of that glow. Ah, remembering young, unjaded Mark. Yes. Wearing my little sailor suit with the sucker in my mouth, playing Pandemic Legacy Season 1. Those were the days, Walker. Those were the days. I was remembering that song as well. Onward to number ten. Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion. It's a solid package. If you're gonna Gloomhaven, Jaws of the Lion is a great way to do it.
1: Yeah, if it really is. If you have a group of people like uh role players, and they said, Oh, yes. we want to get into tabletop gaming, you know, mm. what's a good I think this is Maybe. Is if, great... they,
2: if they can handle the rules the rules complexity. Yeah, but
1: it's all on the cards. That's what I'm saying. Oh, the you're Jaws, right. the Oh, line. the onboarding is really it, good. Yeah, you're right. It's such a step, great step-by-step system mm, to good get, point. get people into like a campaign, mm. heavier game that just walks you through everything. The maps are on the boards. It that it, The setup is much sure. easier than normal Gloomhaven. You're right. It has the replaceable cards. I think this is just a great way to
2: get onboard people
1: into the hobby.
2: The only thing I wish is that you could use... Uh, Gloomhaven and Frosthaven characters with all the other Gloomhaven products because the character variety is what gets me so deeply in terms of the quality of Gloomhaven gameplay. And the, the characters in Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion are great. Uh, but when you had over a dozen great characters in base Gloomhaven, going to a system where you only have four and there's no retirement feels like a tremendous step back. Which is quibbling? It's quibbling. Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion is great. It's an absurd value, and it is absurdly widely available. Yes. Is it back? Purple can you use the Jaws of
1: the Lion characters in the, in the in the other systems. Kind of. There's some yeah. fudges you can do.
2: All right. Yeah. On to number nine. We have Innovation by Carl Chudick. Another game that I love that Walker does not. We almost came to blows the last time we played Innovation. I shouldn't say don't like it. <laughs> You have very serious
1: misgivings. I do. And I think those would all go away with m- more plays.
2: I don't know. That just might solidify the ire. Maybe. <laughs> Innovation is very much a game of wild chaos and mitigating and navigating wild chaos. Those are games that tend to be very, very polarizing. I'm not, not to the same extent, but to me, the paradigmatic example of this is Cosmic Encounter. I'm not saying they're similar games, but they're similar in in the vibe that says, "Mm, things are not going my way. I just got to wait and bide my time and find an opening. Sure, but innovation,
1: I think, takes a lot less time.
2: Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Than a cosmic.
2: Oh, no, sure. Of course. I wasn't comparing them. No, no. But I mean mean
1: that, that feeling, right? Sure in a shorter time span is not so bad Oh, and make as no as
2: mistake, one. I am sure that anybody that likes it, the the stands will will the the I just made, made, as well as probably a lot of Cosmic Encounters fans will hate the comparison I just made, but whatever, I'm going to stand by it. Number eight is Spirit
1: Island, another game that I tout and tout about that is so great.
2: Yeah, no, the the hits keep keep I think think the listeners are with with more than that they they with that's you, you, Walker. Fine. This that's is, fine. Is, no, it's fine. it's just it's it's just uh striking we got some coming up. Don't well I worry. guess uh, and it really uh it, it, well it helps explain the popularity of Sizzler that's for sure it's true you know if, I I've long been trying to find a game where we could you know have a regular show about it and I have to say that spirit Island has proven to be a very very good source of content and true in in the in the section of cooperative games i think
1: the majority of them are kind of light they're more of like a sort of family orientated co-op game sure and i think yeah spirit island came along and it's a much much heavier cooperative game yeah. so i can see why it gra- has grabbed a lot of people
2: well it, it, in that way it's very much like mage knight just and like I, mage knight. I, I, I i say that as a joke but i also mean it seriously yeah. because when mage knight came out it's like oh finally a really heavy co-op game and Spirit Island is kind of in that same niche in that sense. Again, comparisons that will probably make fans very, very angry. On to number seven. I was very surprised by this conclusion, but I'm very gratified. I do not see people talking about this game, Walker, and that game is Revive. Because it, it really hit the wrong time, right? It came in very late in the year, right? So it didn't... Sure. Its just, timing was bad. Its timing was bad, but I think it is genuinely one of the best heroes of the past few years, and I am shocked at the lack of recognition that it gets.
1: Yeah, and and it got a lot of coverage before it came to North America. Oh, you're right. So, so therefore, yeah. you know what I mean? So- it hit
2: Europe, and and it got a lot of good coverage there. Uh but then that kind of died out and then people who in North America who wanted it couldn't get it and by the time it was finally published here, yeah you're right you're right It was
1: a bad time all around.
2: Yeah, but I'm glad I'm glad the listeners love revive like I love revive. It is such a quality Euro game. And I'm very, very happy. And it came up with an expansion yep. that just improved it that much more. Yeah, I, I really like the expansion. It's really hard to expand Eurogames well, and I think the Revive expansion is very, very good. I haven't, I don't have an, quite as much experience with the expansion as I would like, but that I've is, enjoyed it. That is number seven. Number six is Hansa
1: Teutonica. Now, this leads into what we were talking about earlier. Like games yeah. that take forever to set up. Yeah. Like you have to put out the board, and then you have to put out two tokens.
2: Like man,
1: oh man, really? Three tokens. Walk three, away. three Ugh.
2: whole tokens. That's just awful. It's painful. It is. And then the other tokens, you have to shuffle them. Oh, that's. No one's got time for that. Even at the time when it was published, so so Hansa Titanic was first published about ten years ago. Even at the time, one of the comments was, "This strangely feels like a throwback." Even at the time that it was published, you know, was a. A number of modern sensibilities. People are like this feels like it could have come out in the '90s, and <laughs> and here it is. I'm glad that it's maintained its its perennial status, and people still are talking about Hansa Teutonica as well. They should. It's a fabulous euro. At times, you say it's your favorite euro. It's yeah, super tight. Yeah, has interesting mechanisms where
1: you're putting yourself out. Not accomplishing anything, but purposely putting yourself in the way. That, that will, explains
2: a lot about how you live your life. That will put... Uh,
1: <laughs> will optimize your actions a yeah. lot more.
2: Yeah, strategic blocking and being able to leverage non-standard action efficiency because it it came out at at a time when Euro designers had learned that getting more actions was very often the dominant strategy, right? And I'm not going to argue that you can stay at two actions forever in Hansa Teutonica, but the difference between three actions and four actions in Hansa Teutonica might not matter much if the rest of your actions are bad. So I've seen people do very, very well with a really novel blocking mechanism. Yeah, it's great. Hansa Teutonica is wonderful. And they have a big box... Uh, which
1: adds the new maps the new maps completely change the game yeah they're very different yes. because yeah it, you use the same components but the the rules that apply to how you put out your pieces on the map completely changes how the game's played absolutely and sometimes I wish we we could unfortunately a lot of the times we're introducing new people to yeah. It. And so we're always
2: constantly going back to the original map. It's a little, it's a little much for new players. the The England, the the Great Britain maps are a little intimidating for new players. It's like, oh no, you don't get to place any pieces there. You don't have permission. So yeah. you have to go get permission to play. I like them, but yeah, I don't get to play them as often as I would like. Number five is Gloomhaven, the the OG, the OG. You know, we still haven't played Frosthaven. It's true. It's <laughs> been sitting each off a copy. Yeah. To a certain extent, one of the reasons why we have it is we know it's going to be amazing. Like, what yeah. Like what are the odds that it's not good? Like, And besides, furthermore, although we appreciate the fact that you fine listeners of So Very Wrong About Games consume no other media at all, no other news, that's no right. other gaming podcasts, you probably don't even read anything. And probably no one else has really talked about it either, right? Well, so, that's that's the thing. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It, I, I, What could we I contribute bet. to the discourse about Frost David? Yeah. I still want to try it, of course, but anyway. Number four is an inclusion very much like Revive. Uh, this, this for me. This, if anything, when I saw this in the list, I'm like, these are good people. Bad-tasted podcasts. These are our people. These are our people. Cthulhu Death May Die. There are so many people, critics, gamers, whatever, who lump Cthulhu Death May Die into the giant bucket and label it like, oh, well, you know, Zombicide et al. Or yeah, whatever, right? Another c plastic bucket. Another c classic thing. It's like another co-op thing where you're throwing dice and killing monsters and called it, uh, it's all the same. No. You have not done stupid. Until you've done, death may die. Stupid. It elevates stupidity to a glorious level of perfection that it is. Gen- and I mean this sincerely, sincerely, genuinely subversive, which is great. Yeah, that's even before you're strapping yep. dynamite on a moose. It
1: is like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon come to life. <laughs> it is like plain Scooby-Doo Cthulhu style. It is fantastic. And mechanically, it's good too. Yeah, it's like, yeah it's even so the stuff like you pick yeah. a god and they get their followers and you pick a scenario and it all just works together. It's really good modularly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, it's, oh. Easy to teach. Yeah. Tons of different characters to play. And a blast. It's a blast. I'm looking forward to the new content. And this number three, I don't think I've ever heard it before.
2: Uh, Do you know how to say these words? Number three, it says... um, Tigers and elephants. Is that... Um, uh, Tigers and Euphrates. Yes.
1: Tigers and Euphrates. Everyone knows it is our game, the game we love. It's hardly
2: surprising. Uh, It's very well regarded amongst a certain class of Eurogamer that I associate as being consonant with uh, a certain section of the hobby. And, uh, you know, especially given that we love it so much, it's not really surprising that we get there. It absolutely deserves to be on any list of the top anything. You know, top pasta dishes, Tigers and Euphrates. Yes. Top vacation destinations, Tigers and Euphrates. Top sports cars. Top sports cars, Tigers and Euphrates. Yeah. I agree entirely. Yeah.
1: So it is a a tile placement game where the map evolves and give you the, gives you this weird civilization changing feel and you're erecting monuments and...
2: On the one hand, yes. I would say so it, it's a bit of a tragedy, personally, uh, that we don't play it more often. Partially, this is because Tigers and Euphrates, amongst some people, is very polarizing. There are a lot of people whose opinions I respect a great deal who despise Tigers and Euphrates. Some of some of those criticisms I think are way off base. Like I've heard some people dismissively say, oh, you know, you just need to draw red tiles, that's all there is to it. It's like this is completely false. But there are lots of legitimate reasons to dislike Tigers and Euphrates, and some of them are held by a couple of people who are very regularly at our table. And so consequently, we're not really in a position to play Tigers and Euphrates very much, which is a shame. It's true. Number two, The Crew Mission Deep Sea. Very, very high up on the list. And I can't say I begrudge its inclusion. That's,
1: that's... No, I think it's all down to accessibility, right? Yeah. It's a trick taker. It uses fairly standard trick taking rules. And this particular edition of just flipping up some
2: cards and starting, you know, yeah. You can play the missions. You don't have to play the missions. Yeah. You're like, oh, what, what difficulty do we want? Bam, bam, bam. We're done. Like let, let's go for it. Yeah, and consequent and, and as well the the amount of variety you get is just mind blowing. The change, I think, the iterative change between the crew and the crew mission Deep Sea. It's I loved the crew. Uh, you know, going going to Pluto space crew was great. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I was completely unprepared for how much better Mission Deep Sea could be. Agreed. And number one, the favorite game of the patron listeners who have submitted the list to this uh, computational elements and I am very happy this is this is a great game to be at number 1 I'm very happy to have our podcast associated with 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 such a design is guards of atlantis too By Wolf Design and Archim Nichiporov. It was our game of the year. It was our game of the year. It is absolutely something that I strive to bring to the table whenever I possibly can. But you need an even number of players. Ideally, you don't want too big an imbalance between experts and novices. And again, it's a polarizing game. It is a game about planning and accepting failure. And accepting the fact that you're going to die sometimes. And sometimes that cool ability isn't going to trigger. And accepting the fact that those cool abilities take work and careful positioning. I really feel it's a game
1: you can play different ways. You can be the person that memorizes everyone's initiative and, and yep. know what cards, or you can just sit back and just enjoy how the characters interact. If you 100%. enjoy MOBA games, you can just sort of press through and do your own thing.
2: I agree. And yeah. I think the designer might object very strongly to that characterization, but no, I agree. I think you can play intuitively and just let your understanding of things just evolve naturally and, and just just roll with it. And because there are these lovely little moments of triumph and glory that if you're able to focus on them and accept the fact that sometimes you're going to have setbacks because you haven't planned anything to the nth degree, then there's lots of joy to be had in Guards of Atlantis 2, even if you're not inclined to grapple with the fact that it's near perfect information, very deterministic, very planning focused. I agree entirely. And there's going to be more content. I'm looking forward to that. Yes. So that are the top 20 games of our patrons. Number one being Guards of Atlantis 2. I enjoyed this exercise. It was we have, good. We have listeners with great taste. We Again, were... choice of podcast notwithstanding. it's yeah, That's also true. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Can't knock it out of the park every time. So thank you very much to our listeners. We appreciate it a great deal. To those that have access, look forward to some bonus content this week or not. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate everybody who has decided to spend some time with us here at So Very Wrong About Games. You can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. Please do take care of yourself. Enjoy your hobby time. Enjoy the people you're spending your hobby time with. And we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Biggin. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.
2: And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the
0: ultimate no-brainer.